Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. In 2013, Abigail Fisher sued the University of Texas, saying she was discriminated against for being white. Now, a group of students are suing Harvard, saying they were discriminated against for being Asian American. Both lawsuits take aim at affirmative action, and both can be traced to the same man. But this time, the White House is taking up his cause. It's Friday, August 4th. So brief background, I guess. So I had, I think it was a 4.67, if I remember correctly, for my GPA. Wow. So you had you had, you had had more than a 4.0. Yeah, I had more than a 4.0. I, said, I took multiple honors in AP classes. Got it. Um, I had a perfect ACT score. Wow. Um, for extracurriculars, I played the piano for over 15 years. I did speech and debate. I also sang in a choir, um, which actually went to Obama's inauguration um, back in 08. You sang at... And... You sang at... Barack Obama's inauguration for president? Yep, his first inauguration, that's wow. correct. This keeps getting better. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff, but I think that mostly summarizes it. So with that resume, where did you apply to college? I applied to all Ivies except one. Okay, and how many accepted you? One. That was 10. What was your reaction to that ratio of acceptance to rejection? I was definitely quite disappointed in that. Um, so I actually reached out to the school's admissions offices. I wanted to know... Um, how these schools used race as a factor of consideration. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering whether, you know, my race had any factor or how large Mm -hmm. a proportion did it play. You know, there's just a natural perception that there's a quota set on how many Asian American students a school can accept. Simply because there are so many qualified Asian American students that it'd be difficult to accept them all. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to turn away some. There just seems to be like a separate standard set for Asian Americans in which their minimum bar is set higher than that of other races. I wanted to see if there is any evidence or any kind of signs showing that. And tell me about Harvard in particular. Is that where you were mm-hmm. most eager to go? Um, Yale and Harvard was pretty much a tie for me. Into If I had offers from both schools, it'd be quite a tough decision to choose which one. Mm-hmm. Both schools are equally as good, so it'd be hard to choose between one of those two. But definitely those were among my top two schools I really wanted to go. After the rejection from Harvard, Michael Wang joined a group of Asian American students who questioned the university's decision-making process. My colleague Anna Mona Hartakalis is reporting on the story. So in November of 2014, a group calling itself Students for Fair Admissions filed a lawsuit in federal court in Boston against Harvard University alleging discrimination in admissions against Asian Americans. 
And the lawsuit says that Harvard has been doing this through what are essentially illegal quotas. And the Supreme Court has ruled that numeric quotas are not acceptable in college admissions. Harvard says it doesn't have them. But this lawsuit says that, in effect, it does, because year after year after year, roughly the same percentage of Asians and of whites and of blacks, of Hispanics, are admitted to the freshman class. So they're saying if Harvard were going strictly on merit, there would be a lot more Asian American students there. And Harvard doesn't want that because that would reduce the numbers of white students and black students and Hispanic students. And what's happening with this legal case now? So just a few months after the lawsuit was filed, a coalition of 64 Asian American groups went to the Department of Justice and the actually the Education Department as well to file a complaint that tracks very close to the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And this was under the Obama administration. It sort of languished in the Justice Department. Now a new administration has come in and they say that they're going to look at it. So the Trump administration took a case that the Obama administration basically ignored and said, we are going to do something about this. Correct. And what are they doing about it? So the Department of Justice posted a job opening for lawyers who would work on university admissions discrimination. Essentially, affirmative action is what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. right? So they're taking up the issue of affirmative action. And based on this lawsuit, give me a sense of what it's like for Asian Americans applying to college right now. All right. So the, the lawsuit actually likens it. I think this is an interesting point to discrimination against Jews at Harvard Mm. going back to the 1910s, 20s, 30s, when many historians have said there was an informal quota against Jews who were then the high achieving minority and started to get too numerous at Mm. Harvard. So now the lawsuit claims the same thing is happening with Asians. They're the high achieving minority and they're being penalized for it. So some research has shown, for instance, that to get into a school like Harvard as an Asian American, you need to have an SAT score that's 140 points higher than a white applicant. Wow. Right. So in the lawsuit, it quotes the Princeton Review, which is a very mainstream college prep company. If you are an Asian American, or even if you simply have an Asian or Asian-sounding surname, you need to be careful about what you do and don't say in your application. Don't attach a photograph. Don't write an application essay about the importance of your family or the positive negative aspects of living in two cultures something that most kids think is good to write about. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary mm-hmm. advice that, that suggests that this is kind of a baked-in, understood phenomenon in higher education. It does. It's the stereotyping that these kids are concerned about and that they think is unjustified. And how did this Harvard case come about in the first place? It was orchestrated by Edward Bloom... My name is Edward Bloom. He's a former stockbroker. He's not a lawyer. I have described myself as something like Yenta the Matchmaker. He's filed a number of court cases. Two gigantic blockbuster cases. 
Edward Bloom has a knack for finding the right plaintiff to get the justice's attention. We've seen him before and we'll see him again. He's become very adept at this. I confess I have a vanity plate and it is the address of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the mission is to see if I can get a, another case back there. So tell me how you got into this work, because of course, as you said, you're not a lawyer. So what's the story there? Uh, that story begins with my wife and I living in a kind of a garden variety Houston neighborhood. Uh, we decided that we wanted to move closer to um, the inner city, you know, a little trendier, a little hipper. So we did that. Um, and when we went to vote for the first time in our new neighborhood, the Republican Party had not fielded a candidate. Okay. So I ended up running for Congress as the Republican nominee in that district. Wow. My wife and I went door to door and introduced ourselves to the voters of the 18th Congressional District of Texas. It was during that process of determining who was in this congressional district, we realized the Texas legislature had block by block identified residents by their race and ethnicity and harvested them into a congressional district. So made you're, you're up describing what, what you believe to be a, a racially gerrymandered district that... A racially gerrymandered district. I lost the race, but I sued the state of Texas. Hmm. First time I'd ever filed a lawsuit. That was my first win at the Supreme Court. And uh, that was the beginning of my legal advocacy in the arena of race and ethnicity. Uh, he's become very adept at this. He orchestrated the Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin case, which went to the Supreme Court and was decided just last year. Abigail Fisher applied to the University of Texas in 2008. Abby is a shy young woman, strawberry blonde, played the cello, uh, and she was rejected from UT. What was a central question in her case, which got before the Supreme Court? So... That was an anti-white discrimination case. I hope the court rules that a student's race and ethnicity should not be considered when applying to the University of Texas. We have had a decision just handed down in what was billed as the landmark affirmative action case of this term. The court ruled that universities may consider race in student admissions. Affirmative action in higher education is constitutional. In a 4-3 ruling handed down Thursday morning, a divided Supreme Court upheld racial preferences in university admissions. Justice Anthony Kennedy, writing for the majority, argued for American education's need to reconcile the pursuit of diversity with a constitutional promise of equal treatment and dignity. That was a, a very painful day, uh, I think, for all of us who labor for um, the elimination of race in, in higher education. One of the dissenting justices, Alito, did mention Asian Americans as a troubling example of how affirmative action might do something wrong. Um, at that time, I remember talking to Lee Bollinger, who's now head of Columbia University, was at the University of Michigan Law School when it was the target of an affirmative action lawsuit. Um, and he said, just wait and see. Asian Americans are going to be next. You know, that's the way that the anti-affirmative action people are going to go. And that's exactly what we did. In November of 2014, 
We sued Harvard University, arguing that Harvard has a quota that limits the number of Asians it will accept, much like Harvard's quota on Jews during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Did you go out and specifically recruit Asian plaintiffs? Yes. I had to make a lot of phone calls. I had to um, launch a website Mm -hmm. called harvardnotfair.org. Harvardnotfair.org. Let me let me actually type that into the browser here. So what I see is a photo of a dejected-looking Asian woman and the banner next to her says, "Were you denied admission to Harvard? It may be because you're the wrong race." That is the basis of that lawsuit. Asians are an important part of the uh, the Ivy League, and uh, our belief is that they are the ones that are, you know, suffering more from racial preferences than really any other than any other race. So, looking back at the at the kind of chronology and order of these lawsuits from from the outside, it looks like you and your role as a kind of legal yenta, as you've described it went to the Supreme Court with a white plaintiff in the affirmative action case in Texas and and lost that case, and then went and sought to find an Asian student in the Harvard case. Why why did you make that turn? Um, It's not like we abandoned representing uh, white kids. Uh, It's just that's the group that is most harmed by by Harvard's uh, quota system. So why do you do this work, Edward? Why have you devoted so much of your life now to trying to dismantle these race-based protections? That's a good question, and I don't know that I have a good answer. I guess this was just something that I grew up with. The, 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 the lessons that my mother and father, and frankly, maybe liberal Judaism taught me that the foundation of civil rights is that your race and your ethnicity should not be something that's used to help you, nor should it be used to harm you. Hmm. And all that I'm trying to do is to restore that original civil rights vision. I guess that's why I do it. So looking at the the history of your lawsuits and what they're aimed at, they pursue many of the biggest accomplishments in the civil rights movement, voting rights, affirmative action. What do you say to those who conclude that your goal is to basically undo the advances of the civil rights movement? Well, the, it's a false question, um, to be frank. Um, it is, I'm not trying to undo uh, the advancements. I'm trying to restore the original vision. But you cannot cure past racial discrimination with new racial discrimination. That's the bottom line. So finally, Edward, I want to ask you about the interest of our president in this issue. What did you think when you heard that President Trump has called for lawyers inside the Department of Justice to investigate race-based admissions and, and the possibility of discrimination in those admissions policies? I, I, I would have welcomed any administration 
to look fully at this issue, hold these universities' feet to the fire, and make sure that they are complying with uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence in this. I applaud that. America applauds that, and I hope to see more of it. We'll be right back. Three M is using science and innovation to help the world respond to COVID nineteen and taking action to support communities in the fight. Since the outbreak, 3M has responded with cash and product donations, including surgical masks, hand sanitizer, and respirators through local and global aid partners. In addition, 3M plants are running around the clock, producing more than 95 million respirators per month in the U.S. Learn how else 3M is helping the world respond to COVID-19. Go to 3M.com COVID. 3M Science. Applied to life. Nicole Hannah-Jones covers race and education for The Times. I interviewed Edward Blum, and he will readily admit that we have a uh, fundamentally unequal and segregated K-12 system, but then would like to pretend that once we get to college admissions, we are a meritocracy, and every child, Hmm. every student should be treated as if they came from the same place. So given the scope of Edward Blum's work and what you know about him, both from his track record with lawsuits and from your conversations with him, do you believe that this lawsuit that he helped file against Harvard is about discrimination against Asian Americans or is it about something else? I think that Edward Bloom is using Asian Americans the way that many white Americans have used Asian Americans since the myth of the model minority began. The myth of the model minority starts to come about in the 1960s, and it's a direct reaction to the push for civil rights of black Americans. And what it says is it begins to hold up Asian Americans as a group of people who are a racial minority who came to this country and worked hard and were able to succeed. And in that case, you were able to use Asian Americans to show that America really doesn't have a race problem. It's black people who have the problem. So they they become a foil. Exactly. So the current lawsuit is just the most current iteration of that, which is to say black Americans, Latinos are complaining that they need help to get into college because of an unfair system. Well, look at this minority group over here. If we were really an unfair, racist country, how could Asian Americans be doing so well? So how did we arrive at the affirmative action system in the first place? What did it set out to do? If we understand the roots of affirmative action, Lyndon B. Johnson is the first politician who talks about affirmative action in a 1965 speech. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. It is not saying that they didn't work hard or they're not qualified. It's saying that they have not had the same advantages. By the school you go to and the poverty or the richness of your surroundings. When we think about college admissions, I think what often gets lost is colleges are looking at a bunch of different things at all times Mm -hmm. to determine who they're going to accept. Colleges admit students because they want geographic diversity. White women outscore white men on test scores, but colleges want gender balance. It is only when it comes to race that we have a problem. 
even though black students are only 5% of all students enrolled at flagship universities. So even with so-called affirmative action, you cannot argue that black students are taking the slots of white students because they are still underrepresented at any of the flagship universities. So with all that in mind, is affirmative action doing what it set out to do, especially in college admissions now? I mean, no. I think, again, the fact that only 5% of the students at flagship universities are black students with affirmative action shows that it actually hasn't done a great job of catching students up. Hmm. It is not opening the opportunities for black students to get into the best universities. And in fact, what we do know is that white women have been the greatest benefactors of affirmative action because in order How? to get affirmative action policies passed, they had to include white women as a uh, historically oppressed minority group. That was hmm. what more conservative people forced into legislation and policy in order to pass affirmative action. So if you look at white women's college attendance, when you look at white women's earning capacity and uh, entry into kind of the corporate world, their numbers far outnumber uh, black Americans. Though people don't tend to think of them as beneficiaries of affirmative action, they certainly are. Hmm. With that said, in states that have eliminated affirmative action altogether, you've seen a significant drop in enrollment of black and Latino students. So what we have isn't great, but if we don't have it, it's going to be a lot worse. Here's what else you need to know today. Transcripts leaked to The Washington Post reveal the details of tense conversations between President Trump and two foreign leaders during Trump's early days in office. Talking to Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto, Trump said, If you are going to say that Mexico is not going to pay for the wall, then I do not want to meet with you guys anymore because I cannot live with that. The call with Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was even more contentious, with Trump calling an agreement with President Obama to consider accepting 1,250 economic refugees, quote, a disgusting deal. I have had it, the president said towards the end of the call. I have been making these calls all day, and this is the most unpleasant call all day. Putin was a pleasant call. This is ridiculous. And... Today, I will tell you with... Lots of prayers and lots of thinking. Today, I'll tell you as West Virginians, I can't help you anymore being a Democrat governor. At a Trump rally in West Virginia on Thursday night, with the president by his side, the newly elected Democratic governor of West Virginia announced that he is switching parties. So tomorrow, I will be changing my registration to Republican. In doing so, Jim Justice, a billionaire coal and real estate magnate, becomes the first sitting Democratic governor to switch parties in 25 years. I want to thank your great governor. Having Big Jim as a Republican is such an honor, I will tell you. Such an honor. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Lindsay Garrison, Rachel Quester, Annie Brown, Andy Mills, and Christopher Worth. Lisa Tobin is our executive producer. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsverk of Wonderly. Special thanks to Martha Daniel, Michael Simon Johnson, Michaela Bouchard, Peter Sale, Pedro Rosado, Susan Beachy, Deborah Acosta, Mona L. Niger, and Miriam Jordan. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. 
See you Monday. The entrepreneurial spirit is resilient, and U.S. Bank is here to make sure that no matter what unknown pops up, business owners know that we have their back. Because problem solvers are the ones that keep us all moving forward by finding ways to close gaps, even when distances are being kept everywhere. So whatever you need to adapt and evolve your business, U.S. Bank is here to support you. U.S. Bank. We'll get there together. Equal housing lender. Member FDIC.